Hello and welcome to the Global Voices podcast, your weekly dose of global news and local voices. I'm your host Amiya, speaking from Delhi, India. Each week, insiders from our community share what news matters more in their communities and how they build stories out of the local context. Joining now is our Japan editor, Nevin. Hi, welcome to the podcast. Hey, how's it going? Nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, absolutely. So, Nevin, where are you based? I'm based on Vancouver Island. Okay, so Nevin, I wanted you to come on today to talk to us about a story you did this week about Japan's complicated response to the war in Ukraine. Um, the first thing I really want to ask you is, uh, we've seen some really interesting things happen. Like, Japan has seems to have softened its stance on nuclear weapons, which is quite shocking, given Japan is the only country that's been bombed with nuclear weapons. Yeah. So, uh, could you tell me a little bit about how they've been what they've been saying or how their attitude has been towards the war from the start? Essentially, it's it's just uh, people within the the ruling Liberal Democratic Party. So it's, Japan's government is a coalition government made up of uh, the Liberal Democratic Party, which is neither liberal nor particularly democratic. And uh, and Komeito, which or Shin Komeito, which is like a, a religious affiliated uh, party, uh, which is tended to act as the moral conscience of the LDP. Um, but what's happened is uh, since the the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine, um, people are kind of freaked out in, in Japan because Russia is actually a neighbor, a very close neighbor. You can see Russia uh, from uh, the north uh, northeastern tip of Hokkaido. It's just, it's, just, it's just like 30 kilometers across the straits there. And also, like uh, all along the Japan Sea coast, there's close ferry links and so on with with Russia. And so, so, so it's very close. And people are kind of freaked out about this war and the unpredictability of it. And so, some some leading politicians have said, "Hey, uh, Japan should have a similar arrangement that NATO members do with the United States, where um, there should be nuclear weapons that are officially uh, stored." at uh, Japanese military bases, and that will be delegated to Japanese uh, military control should there be a war, because that's sort of what NATO's policy is. But, but with that, though, the thing is, though, the thing to remember is that uh, the, the U.S. 7th Fleet is based in, just outside of Tokyo, and it's got, like, aircraft yeah. carriers and and uh, freak destroyers and stuff, and they undoubtedly have, and there's also like submarines, and they undoubtedly yeah. have nuclear weapons on board. So there's nuclear weapons already in in Japan. Nobody ever talks about it, yeah. but what they're they're talking about is just like like people are saying, hey, let's have a debate about actually having control of of nuclear weapons. So I suppose it's a big uh, cultural his culturally and historically a bit of a shift for them. It's true though we do tend to forget how how Russia is not just uh, next to Europe it's also next to Japan all the way on the other side of Asia. Um I sure, yeah. always forget yeah. And I believe they're still technically at war Russia and and Japan. Yeah, Japan and, and uh, Russia have never formally signed the the peace treaty ending the second world war and and for the past 20 years, basically, Japanese uh, government um, mostly is, is tried to, to inch towards that. Um, there's been a lot of economic ties in, 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 Far East, in Russia's Far East. So Japan's provided economic support and all this sort of thing. And, and there's been talks with uh, Putin and, and the previous uh, a former prime minister, Abe, was always in, in Moscow trying to, 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 to set up peace and also get back some island territories and, and this and that. Um, but it's sort of 
been it's gone now that chance is gone russia's actually stationed anti-ship missiles um in the kural island chain um and which could take out like any any uh, sorry any japanese um, naval vessels that try to transit to the pacific there they've also stationed um long-range anti-aircraft missiles which uh could oh, shoot boy. down airliners could shoot down easily shoot down any uh japanese uh air force planes and whatnot that are stationed in hokkaido they were you know quite uh, intermediate range uh anti-aircraft missiles yeah. so it's kind of it's being a bit it's 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 gone the opposite direction that japan had hoped and um what about sanctions because uh, they had uh, um i remember reading about how uniqlo had said that russians need clothes too and they weren't going to shut down so yeah japan is actually they were, the japanese government and so on was very i, I thought it was surprisingly proactive in terms of uh, establishing um various kinds of financial restrictions and, and restrictions to the banking system uh, and freezing assets of, of so-called oligarchs. And, and I say it was surprising because like um, in previous crises, uh, say with the, the, the Iraq in uh, 2003, Japan has not participated that much or they've only done a token participation. In Iraq, uh, Japan did send um, the military to Iraq <laughs> But they had to be protected by American soldiers. It was really odd. So it was like a token thing, and they did some token sort of token sanctions and token funding and stuff like that. But usually, Japan has stayed kind of an arm's length away yeah. uh, from 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 things that happened elsewhere. In this case, Japanese government was very proactive, and then, um, but, but the, the government uh, also tried to impose a, a total import ban on Russian seafood products, which caused a kind of a, a very a cascading problem in Japan's uh, food industry uh, because apparently I can't recall it's like like 25 they say 25% of, of Japan's seafood products you no know, 25% of crab and sea urchin and and salmon and stuff comes from like Russia and so that caused like a shortage which meant that like like these uh revolving sushi chains and supermarket chains and food processors didn't have any product and so Japan, the Japanese government reversed course and that's now Russia is allowed to, to export uh, seafood back to Japan. So that was disappointing. Um, some, some Japanese companies have uh, pulled out, like some automakers now refuse to sell luxury cars to Russia. And this is not, they're not being compelled to do so by the Japanese government. It's more of like, a, you know, it's like a, a it's business it's a choice. Reputation. It's a business yeah. choice and reputational, yeah. uh, but Uniqlo, you know, it's a fast fashion um, chain. Um, they decided they were going to stay in Russia because, uh, you know, everybody deserves to have clothes or something like that. And so they were just going to stay there. Um, I, I think uh, they, they eventually decided not to, but there are various reasons why they wanted to stay there. So what were the, was it like a question of the markets and the business uh, hit they would take? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, Japan's population is uh, aging. Uh, Japan's population yes. is is uh, is generally declining year over year, and Japan also has become a low wage country, and so um, there are very limited opportunities for growth in certain sectors like like retail in Japan. And so Uniqlo has a very aggressive uh, strategy of, of expansion, and they're doing everything they can. So Russia had I think fifty stores, uh, fifty wow. fifty Uniqlo outlets, and so. 
Even though Russia, by the way, faces the same demographic uh, problems that Japan does to address it. In. But anyway, so Uniqlo didn't want to do that. And then there was actually a public outcry in Japan about that. And so they, they changed their they mind. Changed the they changed out. Yeah. So I suppose we could safely say that Japan is navigating a, a, a very complicated relationship with Russia, both historically and, and currently, but between the yeah. geopolitics, the borders, the Second World War, and the economic ties that it has, plus the economic ties that it has with the wider world. Yeah. Okay, Nevin, thanks so much for joining us. Heading to warmer climes now. Here's us, one of our Sub-Saharan Africa editors, Njeri. Welcome. Thank you, Amea. Hi, everyone. My name is Jerry Wangare. I am um, the Sub-Saharan uh, Sub editor for Global Voices, um, joining in from Nairobi, Kenya. So I wanted you to come on and talk this week because you did a really interesting story about um, the repatriation of, uh, well, there may not be the most appropriate term there, but a restitution repatriation com conversation around African heritage and artifacts. Uh, and uh, your piece talked about how the debate extends to audio and visual archives, which I thought was really interesting. So why don't we just start in by you giving us a little bit of a background on the story about the restitution and repatriation of our artifacts in the first place. Awesome. So Amir, just like you, I had no idea that there was a difference between repatriation and restitution. I was actually, before this article, I was using the two words interchangeably and um, that just tells you, um, you know, the, um, the information that is out there and how well, like the general public know about um, this whole return of African yeah. heritage. Let me just call it the return, because now it's when you go into the specifics of how is the return happening. And, and that enabled me to sort of dwell into the story because it's been an ongoing debate, but it was, it was in a very niche space, the return of African artifacts that are held in collections of Western museums, whether they were um, forcibly taken, whether they were looted, whether they were, um, there was an exchange, some sort of exchange that, that went on that is not very clear. That is what um, the debate that has been going on. And so, you know, just to sort of set some um, um, pointers. Restitution is basically the calling of the process through which the, the object stolen can be returned to the communities of origin. And so this happens when a lot of, um, uh, when, when the organizations or communities call for return of those objects. And we've seen that in the case of Kenya, we've seen that in the case of, uh, of Mali. And then we have what is called repatriation. So repatriation is the same process, but now it is through the state or, um, or government. So the difference is in who is requesting for these items. So if it is a community that is requesting for the items to be returned, it's restitution. If it's a government, it's repartition. And I found that really, really interesting. And it's something that before going for, before getting into this article, even before going for the event that sort of um, inspired this article, I had no clue. The debate around restitution of African artifacts has in the past and even up to now focused too much on tangible items. And actually, if you do a Google search of you know, restitution of, African, of Africa's heritage, all the media stories that you'll find are around artifacts, be it sculptures, be it totems, be it 
um, be it regalia, be it um, different, they're basically tangible objects. So there has been very little uh, focus uh, whether by the media or even governments and organizations that are calling for the return of these um, cultural items, there hasn't been focus on the audiovisual um, archives. And that's really, and that's, and that's, uh, and that's, uh, and that's, uh, that's a fascinating sort of caveat to this, yeah. and, uh, to this story, because if you think about Africa's, Africa's history and Africa as a people, we're very, we're, uh, people who are very, um, very oral in nature, like uh, the way that we pass stories from generation to generation, uh, there's a lot of oral storytelling or oral literature and things like that. And a lot of this heritage was captured during the colonial period. Now, um, whether it is archival film footage or audio recordings that were done during the pre-colonial, uh, I mean, not during the pre-colonial, but during the colonial period, there's a lot of that. But the thing is, we don't, we, we don't know where it, where, well, we have an idea of where it is. There hasn't been that much um, intentionality in requesting for audio and visual recordings. So that was the basis of, of, of the article. So what I'm finding very interesting here is a bunch of things, right? Firstly, the idea that, um, uh, and they are all tied together. First, the idea that, you know, returning to a community versus returning to a nation, this is two different mm -hmm. things, which I think That's is really, true. really important in any post-colonial state where your community has been split across nations, you know? Uh, because True. of the colonial exit process, let's call it politely. And then uh, secondly, the idea, you're right, of very much the fact that we don't tend to think of intangible heritage as uh, as something that can be taken away, per se, or given back. And, and I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm taking a guess here. Perhaps you can let me know if I'm guessing right. But I, I, I wonder mm -hmm. if, if as a consequence of the colonial enterprise itself, a lot of this captured oral audiovisual history is actually lost to the communities from where it came. That's right, Amia. So, so the thing is, and I, I don't know um, why there has been so, so much fixation on um, the tangible items, I, I guess because for PR purposes, like it, it, it really works for, and, and you see that's good for PR because you have an actual object that, you know, people can take photos and, and, and show. But the thing is for, for, if you look at it in terms of significance in you being able to sort of um, deal with erasure of memory, you hearing your great grandmother talking, singing, has more value to you, or at least to me. I mean, this is just personally speaking. Like if I was to hear my great grandmother in an audio recording where, and, and this one is to give you an, an actual example. So my great grandfather uh, was, was a poet and he used to play, um, and he used to play a traditional instrument. Uh, and I'm forgetting the name right now, but he was well known across across you know across his village and if i could hear the audio recording of his one of his poetry sessions that would bring me more value and would give me a deeper understanding of who i am and where i come from as opposed to going to a museum and looking at a sculpture 
you know this is true but and in this yeah. case i mean there is the personal aspect of it as well but even if you remove the personal aspect of it as in hearing a direct ancestor of of me whoever me is uh, i yes. think that it's it's really fascinating also because human beings as a, we have a tendency to value the tangible over the intangible so you will value the money over the mental health for example right uh and i think yeah. this is this is possibly also just simply an extension of that because we have this weird idea that the intangible is always available whereas there is a scarcity associated with the tangible or something like that <laughs> but before i get too philosophical you're right you're right <laughs> but i mean looking at the just i mean if, if we're sort of like breaking this down to why are we calling because we sort of have to go back to the question the basics of why are we asking for the return of these items so that is um, collective memory. We need to be able to yeah. have, uh, to get back the memory of who are we? What kind of life did we live? And, and when you look at, um, you know, one of the, the stories that I've given of this 65 year old uh, audio recording of a song that was called Temi Rocha, that was sung by a group of young Kipsigis girls in, in, in the Rift Valley in Kenya. And what the return of that particular audio recording did to the community, because there's one, there's one lady who, she was very young then. She wasn't among the singers because, you know, this, this um, by the time they, they were singing, they were, they were quite, um, um, I mean, there were young men and women, and so unfortunately, by the time the return of this uh, audio recording was being done, uh, none of them were still alive. However, there was, um, uh, when this particular audio recording was being returned to the community, there was a young, who was then a young lady, there was, a, there was an elderly lady who was, um, you know, was interviewed and she said, when this gentleman uh, called um, uh, Hugh Tracy came to our community to record this song, I was a young girl then, and I remember hearing it. And we could, and, and we know when you follow this story, you can see how one of uh, the son to um, one of the ladies who sang in the group, receiving that and, and saying, I, you know, I, I, I've, I've, you know, I've, I've never heard this song, and I've never heard my mother sing like that. And, and that, and that is powerful. Yeah, it's invaluable, I would imagine. Yes, and it's uh, just one more in the long list of struggles for uh, reparations and restitution that post-colonial nations continue to fight. I suppose. Yes, that's true. <laughs> okay, yeah. Jerry, thank you so much. This was so interesting. Going up north to Turkey, as war rages in Eastern Europe, there seems to be some thawing between Turkey and Armenia. Joining me now is uh, Arzu, our regional editor for Turkey. Hi, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Amir. Great to be here. So, Arzu, are you uh, based in uh, Turkey? Yes, I am based in Istanbul, and I'm joining you from this beautiful city today. So you, there was a piece that came out this week where we discussed how relations between Turkey and Armenia, which have long been extremely conflicted, seem to be moving to a slightly better place. So can you start by telling us quickly a little bit about the background of the conflict between the two countries? Quickly is a little bit impossible, but I'll try my best. <laughs> Um, so, yes, Turkey and Armenia have been inching closer um, in mending ties that have been um, kind of on a bad 
uh, trajectory since the early 90s. And the reason for that is even though Turkey recognized Armenia's independence when um, Armenia was among a number of um, states that came out of Soviet Union declaring its independence in the early 90s, um, Turkey did decide to close down its border with Armenia, as well as severe any diplomatic ties um, when a war, a full-scale war broke out between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Now, you may ask why this is the case, why Turkey is closing borders when yes. Armenia is fighting a war with a different country, and that's a really good question. Um, so for those who are not familiar with this region, um, Armenia and Azerbaijan are uh, neighbors geographically, like literally they share a border. Um, Turkey is neighbor of Armenia. Turkey does not share a direct border with Azerbaijan per se, but it has been a friend of Azerbaijan. Uh, it has been a friend to the extent that when Armenia and Azerbaijan fought its first war over an enclave called Nagorno-Karabakh, which is inside Azerbaijan and is recognized as part of Azerbaijan, um, Turkey went in full support in um, for Azerbaijan, and hence it was sort of a sign of solidarity um, on behalf of Turkey uh, to close its borders. That in addition to the leaders at the time uh, when the war first broke out in, in the early 90s, um, they shared uh, good relations and, and Azerbaijan and Turkey often referred to each other as these like fraternal nations. Um, and there's even a saying, uh, a famous saying that goes, uh, one nation, two states when it comes to Turkey and Azerbaijan oh, wow. relations. Yes. Uh, and so, you know, this is a very, very, very simple um, explanation of a very complicated and complex um, history that exists within the region, whether we look at the relations between Armenia and Azerbaijan uh, or Turkey's relations with these two countries. Now, a quick explainer there. So the first war, um, over Nagorno-Karabakh uh, took place in the early 90s. Um, it ended in 1994 with a ceasefire that was brokered by Russia. Now, as a result of that ceasefire, um, Azerbaijan lost a significant amount of its territory to Armenia. And so that enclave that I mentioned, that's called Nagorno-Karabakh, although in Azerbaijan we refer to it as Karabakh, uh, was under, uh, became under uh, full control of um, Armenians, but also the Armenian forces occupied the seven adjacent territories to Nagorno-Karabakh, which were populated by Azerbaijani uh, people yeah. until then. And so as a result of that uh, war and ceasefire, um, a lot of people were displaced. Uh, Azerbaijanis had to flee their homes uh, who lived in those seven adjacent territories, but also Azerbaijanis who lived in Armenia had to flee Armenia. And this the same was the case for Armenians who lived in Azerbaijan, um, who fled Azerbaijan uh, in the aftermath and during the war. Another important point is that since the ceasefire, uh, there's not been really uh, a hard stop to fighting between the two countries. Uh, there have been violations of ceasefire periodically uh, over the years until 2020, September 2020, 
when a full-scale war broke out between Armenia and Azerbaijan, uh, known today as Second Karabakh War, that started on September 27th and ended on November 10 with another ceasefire uh, or peace agreement. So, so this was in 2020 when we were like, that was COVID year zero. Absolutely, that was COVID year zero. Um, so the both countries were actually battling through the pandemic. They, wow. um, yeah, the numbers were skyrocketing, but in addition to all of that, they um, engaged in full-scale military operations that resulted in uh, thousands of deaths of military personnel, but also civilians who fought, who were uh, near the front line. But also um, we saw Azerbaijan regain control over the territories that it lost in the first war, so those seven territories. Okay. And it also took control of a significant part of Karabakh itself. Um, specifically Shusha, which is one of um, important, um, historically important towns in Karabakh itself. And Turkey, once again, um, during the Second War was a uh, kind of military supporter of Azerbaijan. Um, Bayraktar drones that we've heard of so many times in the current war that's going on between Russia and Ukraine. Excuse me after Russia invaded Ukraine, uh, were very much put in practice in uh, um, the Second Karabakh War, and they gave significant advantage to Azerbaijani military um, in um, concluding or in in carrying on their military operations um, on the front line. And as a result, now that the conflict (laughs) has ended, the war has ended, and there's been um, uh, more progress sort of and tripartite talks between Armenia, Azerbaijan and Russia and other um, European leaders. Um, Turkey has finally moved to the stage of improving its relations with Armenia. Um, now that Azerbaijan does not object, um, there was a small attempt uh, for uh, improving the relationship between two, the two countries back in 2008, 2009 known as the football diplomacy or the Zurich protocols, uh, but because of Azerbaijan's objections to Turkey um, moving closer to Armenia and improving its ties, um, Turkey dropped and so did Armenia um, any further attempts at the time. So this is the first time really in decades. Um, and that's why it's significant. We're talking about over 20 years of war, effectively. You know, it's a exactly. small little skirmishy war, but with the occasional explosion, but yeah. And um, what, what, what do you think has changed now? Like, I, I, I believe this conversation, it kind of came to the table in, sometime in January, shortly before Russia invaded Ukraine. Uh, and I assume once more brokered by Russia? Uh, yes, the second war, uh, you mean in Nagorno-Karabakh? Uh, I mean yes, the, the second, second uh, peace conversation. Oh, the second peace conversation. Well, yeah, now now that um, Azerbaijan uh, regained control of the territories, because, you know, during the, again, it's really hard to like give a historical context of a very complex conflict, <laughs> but uh, back in the 90s, um, when the two countries, Azerbaijan and Armenia, fought the first war, um, one of the reasons why Turkey closed its borders and, and severe ties was because it supported um, Azerbaijan's um, territorial integrity. Uh, and hence, now that Azerbaijan says that it has restored 
or at least partially restored in surgical integrity. Um, it also doesn't see any reason why Turkey shouldn't engage in opening of um, political dialogue with Armenia. Uh, two questions. What happened to Karabakh? Who controls it now? And uh, secondly, is Armenia okay with the fact that Azerbaijan has, I mean, okay in as much as any of these guys can be okay uh, with the fact that Azerbaijan has reclaimed its territory? Ooh, very, very difficult questions. Um, That's what we approach at the TV podcast. <laughs> um, and of course, I have to be very... Um, uh, careful in, in the terminology that, that I use anyway, because I guess for this specific context, maybe we need we need an Armenian author to join and a Turkish author. That's very true. That's very true. That's very true. I mean, one of the reason why I got hold of you in this is because at least you have the editorial perspective of the region per se. So let's put a disclaimer out here that nobody is claiming to speak for any particular country here or for any particular stance. But just to get a better sense of what the situation is uh, and to understand it. Sure. So um, let's start from your last question. Um, when the war ended uh, and Azerbaijan uh, regained uh, control of the territories that it lost in the first war, um, Armenia lost the war as a result. Um, it lost control of the territories that I previously controlled and it lost uh, yes. one third of, yeah, one third of Karabakh. And that created internal uh, backlash within, within, within the country in Armenia. The prime minister, Nikol Pashinyan, was heavily criticized uh, by the people for losing the war, by not um, continuing um, the, the fighting. But it was uh, clear from the early on um, that in this war, at this time, Azerbaijani military held a far more um, advanced power uh, given its- um, Got it. Yeah. The, the military technology that it was in possession of and, and whatnot. I'm gonna, I'm, gonna and, quote, I'm gonna quote for you here a really lovely Hindi saying, which is Jiski Lathi Uski which means uh, the guy with the stick is the owner of the buffalo. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, that's very accurate. Um, and so when that, when, when at the end of the war with a lot of criticism within, within Armenia, there was, uh, demands that his government resigned and pushing in for those who don't know, um, the story behind the prime minister, uh, who currently runs, um, the country, he, he came to power, uh, through a popular uprising, um, in 2018, replacing a longtime serving um, official uh, who's been mocked and criticized for um, inability to run the country, for corruption, for graft and, and whatnot. So Pashinyan, who came to power as this very sort of, um, uh, uh, yeah, young and dynamic leader through a popular uprising was then faced with this heavy um, criticism just two years later because of his, um, because, because the country lost the war. Um, he even offered um, to resign, he did, there were, there were elections and his party won again um, during the elections, which kind of showed how far Armenia has come in terms of uh, shifting away from 
the narrative that exists in the country for all these years as the ceasefire and i'm using quotation mark because even though there was a ceasefire the fighting continued <laughs> so this like this conflict um continued uh you know the reason why Pashinyan came to power was precisely because people were fed up with the existing structure and they wanted to move forward they wanted to see more democracy and freedoms in the country and i think that also kind of feeds into um the reasoning why he won again even after losing the war it shows how much people really care about you know certain things um that well, should happen i just have to say that it's to me at least it feels like a a really really hopeful story in this moment whatever comes of it eventually uh i just feel that in this moment in time to have a situation that has several parallels to the invasion in ukraine in some ways you know the the breakaway right. regions the brotherhood the all that stuff um it's just nice to hear about a situation where the the people in the country are also able to grow to a place where they are more interested in uh say their rights and their their democratic governance than per se attaching or not attaching their name to a certain part of the territory so that's slightly sure. that's it's slightly hopeful i feel reluctant to use uh, anything stronger than that <laughs> to describe absolutely anything in the world right now um yeah. anyway thanks so much azu that was really informative and i hope i'll catch you back on the podcast again soon that's all we have time for today you've been listening to the global voices podcast your weekly dose of global news in local voices if you enjoyed this episode please subscribe and tell your friends about us Global Voices is an international multilingual primarily volunteer community of writers, translators, academics and human rights activists. Our multilingual newsroom team reports on people whose voices and experiences are rarely seen in mainstream media. To find out more, go to globalvoices.org. You can follow us on Twitter at Global Voices. The music in this podcast is from the track Voyage by Nick Martin from our extended Global Voices community. Thank you for listening.